Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut Labor Department has seen a huge spike in workers filing unemployment claims. NBC 30 reported that in the last week, 52,000 claims have been filed. Before the coronavirus pandemic, an average week saw up to 3,000 claims. But unemployment insurance doesn't cover freelancers, those who are self-employed or gig economy workers. Today, where we live, we focus on the impact of the coronavirus on them. Are you self-employed? Are you a freelancer who's worried about finding work because of coronavirus? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we talk to Connecticut residents who drive for ride-sharing companies like Lyft and Uber. First, joining me now by phone is Krista Dupre. She's a hairstylist at Bowl and Brush in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, also a hairdressing educator. Krista, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. I mentioned that you're a hairstylist. So how long have you worked at Bowl and Brush in Rocky Hill? Uh, Well, the salon opened about um, just in November. So I've been there since it's opened, but I've been doing hair for about 13 years. And tell me when we think about when we go to a salon and we have our uh, hairstylist that we like to go to, uh, how does that work? Are you essentially self-employed and you're renting a chair? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we do have a salon owner, but essentially, you know, we joke around, we just call her our landlord because, you know, we all do work together, but we rent our chair individually. So I am just a self-employed 1099 worker. When you said you've been doing uh, hair styling for, I think, 13 years, if that's right. Did I hear you correctly? Correct. Yeah. And what, is, what has that been like for you, having, again, to be essentially uh, self-employed and find salons uh, that where you have, they have space for you to, to do your business? Um, well, it's definitely been a journey of, you know, finding the right spot. Um, but I, uh, you know, I did, I was on my own for a little bit in a salon studio. Um, but, you know, I, I really loved uh, the place that I'm at now. And um, it's definitely been a journey of hopping to some different places. But uh, about four years ago is when I chose to go self-employed and essentially be my own boss. Tell us what your business has looked like in the last couple of weeks. When did you really start to see things changing, Krista? Right. So I think it was right about almost two weeks ago. Um, so obviously, you know, the news was on. We were listening about, you know, cases popping up in Connecticut and something that seemed so far away very quickly became very real. Um, I think really it hit everybody once the school started to close. So my son goes to school in um, Weathersfield at one of the magnet schools and they closed. And after that, you know, my schedule had to drastically change because I had to care for him. And once those, once the school started to close, the cancellations started to come in. So my clients started to cancel. Uh, at that time, most stylists have waived any cancellation policy fees or anything like that. Um, so that was really when it started to affect my business was when, you know, people started to cancel. 
slowly after that, you know, the recommendations were coming in from the state to practice uh, social distancing and, and staying six feet away from people. And really, once that started to happen, that's when it, it started to make me feel uncomfortable working behind the chair. I mean, we are so close to people. We're touching them. And that was definitely, you know, um, some concern of me. I have a mom who works in uh, a nursing home. So I didn't. I wanted to make sure that I kept my family safe and me safe. So I actually decided to stop working um, last week before the governor had declared that um, salons would be closing. That's right. So just on Thursday, yesterday, Governor Ned Lamont issued another executive order ordering nail salons, barber shops, and hair salons to close. Uh, so before you even got to this point where Governor Lamont issued this executive order, uh, tell us what's going through your mind because you're hearing, again, you want to mm-hmm. keep yourself safe, you want to keep your clients safe, but at the same time, you have to pay the bills. Absolutely. And you know what? I being on social media, the hairdressing community is so connected. And I think everyone was struggling with that, you know, and, and I, I really feel and understand your point of view on either side. But um, I know this is the livelihood of people. This is how they make hairdressers make their, their living is if they don't see clients, they don't make a paycheck. Um, so for me, it was definitely that sense of how am I going to pay my bills? Because regardless of if I have clients coming in, my rent is still due. So not only am I out of work right now, but I'm, I'm uh, and not making any money coming in, but I still have to pay for my space that I rent. Um, it was definitely a, a tough decision, but I think in the end of, at the end of the day, it was what I felt right doing for my family. And, um, and that was the decision that I made, but I know for some people, they, they worked up until the end. So, and I can understand that as well because, you know, there, there's that fear of the unknown. How am I going to pay my bills? Um, and that's understandable as well. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, my guest uh, by phone, Krista Dupre, a hairstylist at Bull and Brush in Rocky Hill, also a hairdressing educator. We're talking with Krista and others who don't have uh, the luxury of working remotely. Uh, their jobs are uh, very much uh, customer-centered and uh, in-person. And now that uh, hair salons and other establishments have had to close because of coronavirus, uh, we wanted to hear from Connecticut residents about uh, what their plans are now uh, as many people are left in the lurch. You can join our conversation 1-888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned uh, unemployment claims are going up uh, across the state, Krista, but the people that are eligible uh, have worked for uh, employers that pay into the unemployment insurance program. So because you're self-employed, is this not open to you? Correct. Um, as to my understanding, it is it is not currently open to us, uh, regardless of if we have been forced to shut or if we chose to. Um, so at this point, my only kind of aid at this uh, time would be a, a small business loan. Um, so that's something that is, you know, really something that I might have to look into in the coming months. 
We're getting a word, uh, this was just earlier this week, uh, the Department of Economic and Community Development, also known as DECD, uh, there have been announcements that uh, they're trying to help uh, this agency, helping small businesses and nonprofit organizations in Connecticut that have been impacted by COVID-19. Uh, they're trying to see if people can be eligible for disaster relief loans of up to $2 million from the federal SBA. So is this something that you might look into? Is that what you're saying, Krista? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that if anything, you know, the bills, if they don't suspend the mortgage payments, which could potentially trickle down to my landlord, quote unquote, um, and possibly me, then that is something that I'll have to look into just in order to maintain, you know, some sort of uh, stability during this time. Again, Krista Dupre joining us here on uh, Where We Live. Uh, we wanted to get another perspective. So joining us now also by phone is Sarah Coffold. Uh, Sarah, welcome back to Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Uh, you were on our show uh, late last year as the artistic director of the Voices of Consinity Choir and Consonare Choral Community in Eastern Connecticut. Uh, you help uh, facilitate a women's chorus, also a children's chorus. Uh, this is especially a hard time for people who are uh, performers, artists, uh, who uh, they can no longer perform in front of an audience, and you have to keep the people around you safe as well. As a choir member, this must be particularly difficult for you. Absolutely. I think a lot of choir members are feeling a little bit of grief and mourning over losing that aspect that is a big part of their lives. It's singing with other people and having that community. Um, and now that's gone. And there's no way to really recreate that online. And I know that some fabulous choir directors right now are exploring ideas of doing Zoom sort of rehearsals or ways to connect over Zoom, but it's really only one way. You can't all sing together virtually in real time. We can do a recording after and then create a virtual choir, which has been successful um, with some composers like Eric Whitaker. But we're still missing that connection piece, and that's really hard for a lot of the singers um, in our community groups. But I'm most worried about the singers in our professional groups who These are, are not getting paid. They're f oh. the freelancers, so they're, you guys are mentioning uh, this is hitting their, their finances. Absolutely. Um, because we had concerts planned for April and May that, they, that aren't going to happen. So we won't receive the revenue from those concerts. And since we're a small nonprofit or arts organization, it's, we don't have a lot of money to pay them, even though they're not going to perform. So it becomes this very difficult balance. And how do we keep our singers from not getting food or not getting paid while also making sure that our arts organization doesn't collapse mm. in this time? It's very uncertain um, because we rely on money from the public in order for us to run. So people that are willing to donate and um, give money at our concerts as a way to help keep music alive in our community, which is our, our whole mission, is to build community through singing together and choral music. Um, and that feels very scary right now because we can't do that as easily. <laughs> 
Did you have uh, concerts planned recently? And how did the, the venues handle, uh, you know, you having to cancel? Have you been hearing from groups that can help uh, your professional singers? Yes. Thankfully, um, there have been a lot of freelance artist uh, resources that have been going out online, um, including one called Artist Relief Tree through Facebook, and they've raised a considerable amount of money um, in a few short days that artists can apply to to receive funds. Um, there's also a lot of um, COVID-19 freelance artist resources page- pages that have lots of different links that artists can reach out to. So that's good. Um, We've been very fortunate in the venues that we have, we had signed up with, um, were churches for our next concerts. We were supposed to have a concert next weekend um, with a festival, but luckily it was a church and they didn't charge us to use their space. So we're very lucky in that respect. but I know that other arts organizations are not quite so lucky and have already paid fees up front to use particular venues. Uh, you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. My guests on the phone, Krista Dupre, a hairstylist in Rocky Hill, and Sarah Koffold, an artistic director of the Consonare Choral Community in Eastern Connecticut. Today we're focusing on Connecticut residents who are freelancers or self-employed and how this pandemic is affecting their livelihoods. You can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. I want to take a couple of quick calls before we head to break. Uh, Deborah is calling from Colchester. Chester, uh, Deborah, uh, tell us uh, briefly uh, what you're experiencing. Hi. Uh, yes, I'm a hairdresser, and I have been working out of my home. It's legal for hairdressers to work out of their homes, and that way you can control uh, one person at a time. I wash my cape in between clients. I wear a mask, uh, a N95 mask, uh, so that we're not exchanging aerosols, you know. And uh, hairdressers are allowed to this barbasol in the supply house. It's hospital grade disinfectant. So I spray down all surfaces and uh, my clients are feeling safe and I am too. So that's how we're doing that. Uh, Deborah, that I think... Is a, that's a thought for yes. other hairdressers to uh, go to people's houses or go mm-hmm. have them come to theirs. Are you worried at all, Deborah, when we hear from public health officials that with social distancing, really to keep a distance from from others? Are you worried even taking those precautions that you might be putting yourself at risk or entering a home where someone's sick? Uh, No, no, not really, because I spray down everything in the area we're going to work. And I do wear the mask before I come in. I put it on before entering or before they enter my house. And... um, if they're obviously sick coughing, no, I won't do them. But um, because you, there's no symptoms and you don't know, I wear the mask. It protects them from me and me from them. So, no, I'm not worried about that. I don't do a lot of clients. It's not, so they are spaced out like uh, two people or a person every other day or so. So yeah. I have time to clean. And, so that's working out. Yeah. Well, Deborah, I, I can see yeah. where a salon would be terrible. Yeah. Well, Deborah, we thank you for calling in, and we hope that uh, you remain uh, safe and healthy. I wanted to take a, another call, Allison from West Hartford. Allison, tell us briefly your experience. Hi. So um, I am a headhunter and a recruiter, and I'm a, a 1099 employee. And um, my company, we focus on recruiting totally in the food and beverage space. So. 
all of our clients are hotels and restaurants, um, both big and small. You know, we have clients local in Connecticut and then obviously across the country. So, you know, our my income is solely dependent on the success of their hires. And right now, kind of the industry has been put at a, a complete halt. So as is uh, sort of uh, my income at this moment. And so what are you going to do, Allison, as we hear that, again, with social distancing, this isn't going away anytime soon? How are you going to make do? Well, I mean, I guess uh, what what I can do personally is, you know, be a supportive uh, consult to all the restaurants that we deal with on a daily basis and kind of help them through the crisis. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, me personally, I think I just have to sit tight and kind of ride out the storm like everyone else. Um, but I do think that long term this will affect um, how people hire in the food and beverage space, who will be able to survive this, you know, whether it's big or small, and what kind of assistance the restaurants and hotels and the hospitality industry will receive from the government, both here at the state level and the federal level, will be really help di- dictate, um, you know, my success and I think the success of everyone in the industry long term. So. Well, Allison, thank you for your call, and we wish you luck uh, in the weeks ahead. Thanks. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Krista Dupre, a hairstylist in Rocky Hill, and Sarah Coffold, an artistic director, again, of the Consonare Coral Community in eastern Connecticut, for calling in to share their perspective. Uh, Krista and Sarah, we hope to follow up with you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, Coming up, uh, we're going to talk more about gig economy workers, people who drive for Lyft and Uber uh, with, again, coronavirus uh, spreading across our country. How are they going to make a living? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you a gig worker now affected by the shutdowns and social distancing that's become the norm due to coronavirus? We want to hear from you today, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We reached out to local Uber and Lyft drivers here in Connecticut. We asked them how the pandemic has affected them. A ginger writes on Facebook, it covers a quarter of my income. I need this money. But those cars are moving incubators for the virus. Mark on Facebook writes, Uber is a second job for me as well. I don't eat if I don't Uber. And Marnie writes, this is my side hustle. My regular paycheck barely covers the bills. I need this to exist and pay things like medical co-pays and just getting by every week. Not being able to count on this income is financially devastating. Uh, Joining us now uh, via Zoom is Molly Tran, director of the public health program at Elmhurst College. Her research focuses on the occupational health of gig economy workers. Molly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, When we talk about gig work, I had mentioned Uber and Lyft drivers, but if maybe you could define it better for us and what exactly that means. 
definitely. So the term is used in a lot of different ways, sometimes, you know, even to include, um, you know, things like freelancers. Um, I, when I use it, I mean, basically, um, work that's transacted over these apps. Um, and so that's different from for, like traditional freelancers, because um, the workers really have to accept the terms of the app um, in order to access the work. And so, um, you know, they don't get to set the terms of their employment. <laughs> they don't get to set the rates or, um, you know, what work is paid and what's unpaid and inside the scope of the work. Um, and so that has a lot of, um, you know, implications for their ability to, to keep working and to have a, um, you know, a cushion or a nest egg um, in ways that maybe traditional freelancers might have a little bit more of. Mm. So these gig workers, they don't have health insurance or they're not eligible for workman's comp or unemployment insurance? That's right. Yeah. So they're considered um, independent contractors. So usually these apps consider themselves just tech companies and then the people who work for them are independent contractors. So they don't have access to a lot of the same worker protections as um, you know, people who are traditionally employed, things like health insurance, um, workers' compensation insurance, um, unemployment um, really none of those protections. Gig economy uh, workers have really grown uh, in the last several years. Do we have any idea percentage-wise how many there they are in our economy? Yeah, it's a really hard question that researchers are working on um, because it's such a diverse group. So, you know, there are many people who are as we heard, working, uh, you know, a gig workshop, maybe on the side of a traditional job, um, other people who are maybe doing multiple gigs. Um, there was a Pew Foundation study back in 2016 um, that found that 8% of Americans had earned money doing um, gig work, um, but that included things like online task work, um, as well as delivery of services like driving and grocery delivery. Uh, there's something appealing for people who've chosen this work because they have the flexibility as, as uh, one of these people that I had read the comment from social media, this is their side hustle. But now it's really problematic because this is a type of job, especially if you're, you're doing ride sharing, where you can't have people in close proximity to you uh, because of uh, this, this illness sweeping our country. And uh, now if they, they can't work uh, this job and maybe they have another job that because of the economy that's always slowing it really puts them in a precarious position molly absolutely yeah i mean i think these workers are always in a pretty precarious position um just because you know the apps can change the terms and and um you know they, they're always sort of at the mercy of that but right now especially we see um you know with them not having access to health insurance and and some of the apps now are you know potentially offering um, some sick leave or some benefits if the workers test positive for coronavirus. But of course, we know that's difficult for anyone to get a test right now. Um, and then particularly since these workers don't have access um, to things like health insurance unless they have it through some other job. Um, so that's especially risky. You can join our conversation, especially if you are uh, one of these gig economy workers that we're talking about. Uh, maybe you drive Uber or Lyft, or there's another uh, position that you have that's really, um, it's hard to hold on to that job because of coronavirus. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned that gig workers make up about 8% of, of the U.S. economy. Yes, that's the last um, figure that we have. 
Uh, that's a, a big number. And in terms of demographics, what do we know about the people again that are that take that are taking these jobs? Yeah. So again, it's a really diverse group. Um, so you have you know kind of splits by the people who are doing it really more as a side hustle for nice to have income and the people who are really financially dependent on it. Um, the last figures we have on that is um, for the, like the driving services like Uber, about 7% um, of the drivers drive about 50 hours a week or more. Um, so they're a minority of the people doing the majority of work. And those people who are really financially dependent on it tend to be, um, you know, non-white, um, they tend to be lower income, lower socioeconomic status, um, lower levels of education. So they're already a sort of marginalized, more at-risk group. Um, and, and then, you know, they're really dependent on this income that now they can't have. Uh, Stephen's calling from Colchester. Stephen, uh, what's your situation? Uh, I'm an Uber driver. And how and long I have you been an Uber driver? I've been driving for just over two years. Mm. And, and tell us over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, what have what has changed for you in terms of as uh, this coronavirus, these cases are growing? Uh, the last two weeks, I haven't been driving at all. I don't feel safe out there. Um, a lot of the businesses shut down. I mean, the casinos are shut down. I drive out in that area. Um, all the colleges are gone. The college kids are gone. So there's no there's no money coming in from that that area. Um, it's tough. Like, mm -hmm. I, I refuse to go out there. I, I don't need to catch anything. Mm -hmm. Was this something that you were doing primarily or as a, a side job? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually primarily because um, mm -hmm. I'm retired and I'm on disability right now. And I just use that for extra money to make ends meet. And right now the money's just not coming in at all. And so what are you going to do, Stephen? What are your other options? My only other option is, I mean, I, like I said, I, I get my mm -hmm. disability check, but other mm -hmm. than that, um, it's take a chance and go out there and drive. Um, my wife is a school bus driver, and she also drives for Uber and Lyft, and she's laid off from driving school buses. When we hear about uh, programs or initiatives from the governor's office or the Department of Economic and Community Development, what do you want to see state um, lawmakers, policymakers doing to help you and your wife? I, I have no idea on that. Mm. So right now you're just going to make do and see what the next few weeks brings. That's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's all I can do is just, I mean, my wife wants to go out and drive. She's been driving actually the last two weeks. I, you know, I don't, I don't feel her going out there is safe either because you just don't know, like, who you're picking up and things like that. Um, so right now we're just hunkering down in the house and, and waiting this out and see what happens. Well, Stephen, thank you uh, for calling in to uh, Where We Live, and you can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, let's try Michael in Groton. Michael, you're on the show. Hello, thank you. So tell us, uh, what's uh, your perspective? Um, yes, so, so I, I, I hear a lot of the you know, kind of gloom and doom, and obviously we're in a very, very tough spot for a lot of people. Um, but one thing I found with the, with the gig economy, I'm, I'm an Uber driver as a secondary income, and what I've found is that there's a lot of flexibility and freedom that you don't have in a, a W-2 job. In fact, that's why I do it. 
um, you know, my main income is a, a business that I run. And so having something I can work any time, and if they change the agreement on me, I can just switch. If, if Uber changes something on me, I'm not an Uber driver anymore. I'm a Lyft driver. And if they change it, I find something else. And Uber, uh, Uber and Uber Eats are the same app. So for someone who's not comfortable driving passengers, they could still be a delivery driver, which there's a high, a high demand for. And, um, and I, I think also for a lot of people, there, there's opportunities they might not be seeing because there's so much gloom and doom and the market's crashing and everything's falling apart. Um, for example, a, a business owner friend of mine recently reached out and asked me to run their social media because they never really had a social media presence before. And now they, of course, really need one. There's not much walk-in traffic to their business. Um, and, I, and I think there's, there's not enough focus on some of the potential bright sides um, for people who, you know, who might be able to work from home in ways they didn't realize or new opportunities or you know, thinking about uh, Kroger, how they're hiring 10,000 people and working directly with the restaurants to hire their laid-off uh, laid waiters and waitstaff. Well, Michael, we appreciate uh, that point, and it is good to hear uh, some positives again uh, with uh, uh, the last couple of weeks and, and many people's lives. I wanted to go back to my guest via Zoom, Molly Tran, Director of the Public Health Program at Elmhurst College. Uh, Molly, how do you respond to what Michael's saying? Yeah, um, so I think that's in the research that we've done with Uber and Lyft drivers. That's the reason that they do it. And it's, it is fulfilling a need for people to you know, have this income that they can do um, around a caregiving schedule or because they're starting a business. Um, and that's the real upside to it. The downside that we've seen, um, and of course is becoming really much more apparent now, is that lack of a safety net and the fact that they don't have access to insurance. And and the fact that, you know, again, something we're seeing in more relief now is what your um, first caller was talking about, which is constantly making that trade-off between their own safety and health and making income. So in times where there's not a pandemic, we're seeing it more with things like driving late hours or maybe going to a neighborhood that they don't feel safe in. Um, now it's becoming, do I drive and, you know, potentially expose myself to the virus um, versus taking advantage of, of the opportunity to continue making income. Earlier, Molly, you mentioned that, uh, I know this has been reported also by the New York Times, companies like Uber and Lyft, Instacart, they've said they're going to pay workers 14 days if they have a diagnosis of coronavirus. We know it is difficult to even get tested for coronavirus. You have to have specific symptoms and criteria before you can even get a test. But I'm wondering, with uh, the way these companies have treated uh, these Uber and Lyft uh, contractors, so to speak, in, in previous years, if they are maybe driving for them, but they've also got another job, would they still be able to be eligible for this uh, 14 days of pay? What do we know about what Uber and Lyft has promised? Um, you know, I don't know the details of what they've promised um, to the drivers, uh, aside from what you mentioned and what's been reported in the press. Um, I do think, you know, they're, they're right to be skeptical um, of, of this promise and, you know, between the fact that they may not be able to get a test. Um, also, you know, I don't know how they're defining two weeks worth of pay. Or is that really two weeks of working every day? <laughs> Are they saying maybe, you know, the average driver drives three days in two weeks and so that's what we're gonna give you. I, there's always a little bit of um, reason to, to be skeptical about um, how these companies, <laughs> based, on, based on the past history, how these companies are gonna treat the drivers. Mm. 
And I understand some of them are actually even renting their cars. We got a comment from Jonathan who writes, I'm afraid they will repossess my car because I can't afford to pay the car note or any of my bills. Currently, I'm short $941 for the month. I can't even put gas in my car when I try to drive. I may be acquired $20 in five hours. Uh, he writes, we need payment freezes on rent and all bills by the government until further notice if we're going to survive this, not just as Uber drivers, but all citizens need this. It's a sad and terrifying time. I'm not sure how I'm going to recover from any of this. Amali, um, again, uh, the perspective uh, as, as you are studying uh, gig workers and what this means for so many. Yeah, I mean, that's, you hear things like that, and it's terrible to hear. Um, and there are many workers who are renting their cars from the companies, and I haven't heard anything about them, um, you know, potentially freezing, you know, the payments on that. Um, again, even from the studies that we've done of the of the drivers, at times that are more normal than this, um, yeah, they have a lot of financial stress about, you know, making those payments, um, you know, making enough and and, you know, not having an issue with the app where they don't get paid what they should, things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can imagine this time where the business is just not there, that, um, you know, the stress levels and the work-related stress levels are, are much higher. Well, I want to thank Molly Tran for joining us via Zoom here on Where We Live. She's director of the Public Health Program at Elmhurst College. Her research focuses on the occupational health of gig workers. Molly, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. After the break, we're going to hear from an economist about what all this means and what we can expect coming up in the next weeks and months. Uh, Tara, another Uber driver, uh, writes, Ever since the virus hit Connecticut, Ubering and Lyft has been very slow for me, even some of my fellow drivers. This is my main income. I rely on driving, so it's hit me hard. I also do Grubhub, and even that lately has been slow, surprisingly. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been focusing on how the pandemic is affecting workers who don't qualify for unemployment insurance. Joining us now is an economist via Zoom, Ibrahim Shakaki, assistant professor of economics at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Ibrahim, uh, as an economist, your reaction uh, to hearing uh, several Connecticut residents calling in and sharing their comments on social media. Uh, again, they're gig economy workers, freelancers. They're really concerned about uh, where we are today. Yeah, uh, well, Lucy, I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, that's what I would say. I was listening to Krista and some of the Uber drivers that were talking to you. And, you know, if we look at the last 10 years in terms of what we call macroeconomic performance, it might seem that, you know, things were going okay. Uh, we were in a state of recovery, which basically means that, you know, yes, output was increasing steadily, unemployment levels were low, but it was hiding under the surface two issues uh, that people have been working on, economic and income inequality, have been talking about for a long time. The first is that we have uh, uh, the distribution of income and wealth has reached a level of inequality that has never been witnessed before. But perhaps more importantly, second, is that many of the new jobs that were being created do not provide workers with a real safety net in the sense that first, they don't provide job security uh, of person actually believing that they're going to 
uh, have their job on the long run or the medium run, and also that they pay low wages. And this low wage is is very relevant uh, today. A report actually came out uh, uh, last November addressing the extent of low-paying jobs, and basically it showed that around 53 million workers had a median income of $18,000 annually. Now, why is this important today? Well, it's because it basically shows that very few people save uh, in this country. 20% of Americans do not save at all. And, and surveys are showing that 60% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their saving account. That means that they don't have any safety net. And a few weeks can mean exactly what I heard the people on your show say, that they won't be able to pay their rent, their mortgage, their utility bills, let alone the new costs, you know, stocking up, formula, uh, sanitization, you know, all of these issues. And we know uh, the end of the month is getting close, and this is really going to hit people hard as their their bills come due. We're hearing that uh, Bank of America, I believe uh, New York State's working to uh, have it to freeze uh, mortgage payments, so that way you know you're not going to be in default. Uh, but I'm just wondering if we can talk more about some of the federal policies and measures that we've been hearing from the administration, the Federal Reserve. Uh, what kind of impact will that have? Let's start first with uh, the lowering of interest rates. Yeah, so I mean, normally in recessions, and I think this is what happened in the beginning, normally the first go-to tools are what we call monetary policy. So these are policies that are controlled by the central bank, so the Federal Reserve in, in the U.S., and those have two options. You either decrease the interest rate, and so the idea is to encourage investment. Now, the problem with that is... A, we were already operating at a very low level of interest rate, so below 2%. So there wasn't really a, a big margin over there. And perhaps secondly, more importantly, the problem really wasn't only uh, the, an issue of, uh, uh, of uh, companies uh, and their finances. The other tool, the other monetary policy is to increase what we call liquidity. Mm -hmm. So ensuring that banks and financial intermediaries have the liquidity to provide uh, for businesses and small businesses. And that's when the Fed also injected something like one and a half trillion dollars just last week to deal with this liquidity issues. The problem is that these monetary tools, whether it's the interest rate or, you know, putting money supply in the economy is not going to work with this crisis. And I think this is why a lot of people uh, are talking about this being a much larger uh, uh, crisis going forward, depending on how long this lasts from a public health issue. And so kind of the response was that, OK, we need to deal with other types of policy, what we call fiscal policy. And that's exactly where the government uh, plays a larger role. And that is basically going to be focusing on uh, supporting what we call aggregate demand consumption. If you look at the economy of the US, the, the whole output of the US, 70% of that comes from consumer household consumption. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about around you know, $14 trillion. That is, a lot of it is, is going to disappear in the next coming weeks. People are not going out. They're not going to sporting events. They're not paying at restaurants. They're not going on tourism. They're not traveling. And so this is something that they're trying to focus on. Uh, and I think the well unprecedented in, in one sense uh, uh, policy is to actually send Americans money. And I think this is what uh, governments are now realizing that's what we need to focus and we need to focus on doing this now because we have such a large number of Americans mm -hmm. who basically live paycheck to paycheck.
So what you're talking about, the real economy versus the focus on the stock markets, people having consumer confidence to continue to spend money. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, that's what we always have to keep in mind. The stock market can rebound much easily more than when we're talking about the real economy. So the focus, I believe, now should be on this issue of uh, supporting workers. This is this should be the goal. It's very important to understand that public health is much more important than public debt. And so we need to think about supporting workers, both as households. These This labor force you know, is part of a household, and you need to talk about their basic necessities, but also as workers providing them with protection. And you know, this is something that a lot of countries are already starting to do. I mean, even in the US, uh, uh, I know, for example, in New York, there's this 90 day uh, 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 mortgage payment mm -hmm. freeze, but a lot of countries have done a lot of other policies as well. Um, and I think that's what we should focus on. We should focus on the quality and the duration of these benefits, uh, you know, including suspending utility bills. Uh, I heard uh, one of the uh, uh, people on the show talking about paying their, their bills and their, their rent. So freezing rent and mortgage payments, utility bills, uh, talking about installments for, for bank loans for, for small and, and medium-sized uh, companies. Uh, but basically, you know, trying to make sure that people, at least on the short run, have what, you know, they need for their survival, basically. Uh, you're hearing via Zoom, Ibrahim Shakaki, Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College in Hartford. I want to take a couple more calls in, in just another minute, Ibrahim. But when we hear about uh, the president, uh, also uh, senators uh, in our Dem Democratic senators even talked about sending cash payments to all Americans. Uh, how much of an impact will that make? Well, um, it a big impact for sure, but only for a short period of time. That's what I'm trying to, to, to focus here. So, you know, there is this discussion about legislation uh, of $1 trillion. Half of that would go to, uh, you know, partly bailing out some big, probably airlines, but also partly, you know, going to uh, medium-sized businesses to make sure that they can keep people on their payrolls. The other half is basically checks, checks of, uh, you know, the number hasn't been decided yet, $1,200, $1,000 per month. And so, yes, on the short run, this is useful because it makes sure that people have money to pay for what they need in terms of, you know, food survival. Uh, um, but then we should extend this and we should make sure that other policies are also set until we know, because that's the thing, you have this fundamental uncertainty about what's going uh, to be going on. And unfortunately, our labor force is being treated as this, you know, reserve uh, pool of workers where you take them when you need them. And then when mm -hmm. something goes wrong, uh, um, they're fired. I'm glad you bring up that point because that's what's happening to a lot of people because establishments are being are closing down. Municipal governments are trying to figure out uh, who uh, they can let go because they can't work remotely, uh, worried about the bottom line. But you have other countries, I think, is it France where coronavirus, they're not get, people are not going to get fired because they can't work. Absolutely. So again, those were some uh, in, in Italy, you also have uh, a number of policies, uh, new funds uh, to, to hire new doctors and nurses, tax credits, uh, support for family with uh, uh, children, 
uh, paying self-employed. We're talking about the gig economy. In, in Italy, they have 600 euros for any self-employed person. So they are realizing that, you know, this is a, a, a public health issue. Yes, this is an economic issue. Right now, this is about human beings and their livelihoods and them being able also to survive what's going to come in the next few weeks, few months. Uh, we're not really sure. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Darcy's calling from Glastonbury. Uh, Darcy, what are, what are you experiencing now? Um, well, just uh, in my industry, I'm a children's entertainer. We do family entertainment. So our industry is completely dead in the water. Um, and, and I kind of have two aspects. There's, like, the things that we can't do anything about, and then there's the part there we're creative people and there are things that we can do if we work together so for instance i've lost all my fairs and festivals i'm not going to be face painting or doing henna at anything in the foreseeable future um we don't have project graduations anymore we're not just losing the little tiny birthday parties we're losing large corporate events and we are gig workers we work as subcontractors um as entertainers etc um, but again, because we're creative people, it's sort of, we can think outside the box. So one of the things that I'm doing is we've got all these kids that are home from school and parents that are forced to work from home and keep their kids busy while they're trying to focus on what they can do. So we're making make and take arts and crafts boxes and having designated pickup times uh, at my art studio in East Hartford, or we're delivering in our local area and we're hoping to expand that where we're keeping other people working, helping with deliveries. I just made a deal with a balloon uh, decor and twisting an entertainment company in Milford where over the weekends there'll be pickup points at her location uh, just to kind of spread this out. Well, thank you. Thank you, Darcy. We're, we're glad to hear that you are being creative and finding other ways uh, to help yourself and other people in uh, your industry. Uh, one more quick call. Uh, Michael from Cromwell. We just have a couple of minutes, Michael. What are you what are you doing? Hi, Lucy. So in any case, I'm a, a church musician in Cromwell and a piano teacher um, with churches all kind of masses on the hold for now. I'm not sure how that's all going to shake out, but um for piano lessons, I continue. I continue my lessons over FaceTime with my students, and it's working out really well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can keep a paycheck coming in that way, so to speak. But well, uh, it also brings a sense of normalcy to them and to me as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we're glad to hear that, Michael. Uh, thank you for giving us a call, Ibrahim. Uh, uh, we're almost out of time. As a macroeconomist, uh, what are you going to be watching for in the next few weeks? Uh, Well, you know, there are already, unfortunately, uh, you know, bleak numbers coming out. Uh, uh, You know, like you said, uh, unemployment filing has increased 33% in just one week. Um, But there are numbers talking about at least from quarter to quarter, from the first to second quarter of the year, something like a 10% decrease in GDP. That is huge. Uh, um, you also are talking about around three, three and a half million people losing their jobs uh, uh, between the first and the second quarter. So I'm waiting for, uh, um, actually, in terms of numbers, I'm waiting for April 3rd and, and April 29th when we have figures on unemployment and GDP. Um, but more importantly, I am waiting to see uh, the government implement, extend 
whatever it's talking about that those $1,000 or something close to that sent to people, but focusing again on the workers in this economy. They are the vast majority of people in the labor force. Um, and you have to focus on providing for them. You have to make sure that not only are we sending them money, but we're also enacting legislation regarding freezing rents, freezing utility bills, making sure that people have what they need for this relatively shorter period, and then we can think about the long run. Well, I want to thank Ibrahim Shakaki again for joining us via Zoom, Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College in Hartford. Ibrahim, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, so often when we think about in this country how our health care is tied to employment, uh, Deborah had called in earlier, wanted to remind people that Access Health CT, that's the public health exchange, has opened up a special enrollment period for people without health care. Prices will be subsidized based on income. If you find that you are without a safety net and you need insurance, uh, please check out accesshealthct.com. The new enrollment period is March 19 through April 2nd. I want to thank uh, my producer, Carmen Baskoff, uh, for producing today's show. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks also to Tess Terrible on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue to focus on how coronavirus this Im is impacting all of us in many different ways. If you have particular stories that you want to share, please email me at lucy at ctpublic.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thanks for joining us today.